guys. Welcome back to episode eight of Block Channel. Uh, we are quite lucky to have the guests that we have on today. Um, we're really honored to be joined by Balaji Srinivasan today. I believe I said his name correctly, and if I have not, please, I would like him to let me know. Um, and we are also joined by uh, Dr. Corey Petty. Uh, Petty, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey, guys. Host number three for the Bitcoin podcast. Just coming in to, to talk to Balaji here and, and see what's going on about his views and visions in the, uh, in the Bitcoin space. Yeah, and, and, and Balaji, you know, we, we I don't want to formally be the one to give you your intro because I feel like you can obviously do that way better than myself, but I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with who you are. Um, but if you just want to give us just a, an intro, an explanation on your, your background and, and, and how you're right here today. Sure, and uh, great to be with you here, uh, Stephen and Corey. Um, quick background, uh, so I... Uh, I'm a Stanford lifer, um, that is to say, did my undergrad and PhD degrees there. I taught um, computer science and statistics there for a few years. Uh, I started a genomics company, which became pretty successful. After that, um, I did three things. I taught a MOOC on startups, which uh, at the time was one of the most popular MOOCs ever, with about 200, 250,000 students worldwide. Um, I founded uh, 21, formerly 2106, um, and was part-time there for, for a few years. And uh, I was also a general partner at Anderson Horowitz. Um, and so from 2013 to 2015, I was full-time at Anderson Horowitz and part-time at uh, 21 E6. Um, and then 2015, um, full-time at uh, 21 and uh, part-time at Anderson. Um, so still doing investments and so on. Um, and uh, looking in particular at the uh, regulated industries, uh, especially Bitcoin and biomedicine, but, you know, drones, self-driving cars, all that stuff. Uh, as an investor and then as a an entrepreneur and CEO. Um, uh, I'm working on 21. That's quite a bit of that's quite a bit of work. For uh, I, I would I mean, I would say for a relatively short amount of time, you've, it's 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 clear you you've kind of put your uh, put it to the grindstone for a long period of time and produced quite a bit of things that have been successful or uh, you know relatively successful if you if you kind of compare them to other things. What what do you what are you currently working on businesses you're involved in right now? Like we'd like you to kind of, here's your chance to plug everything you're doing, everything you'd like to be doing right now and, and kind of initiatives or recent projects that you feel are, are really important. Sure. Well, um, yeah, the most important thing I'm working on now is uh, definitely 21. And, uh, we actually put something out there. We, uh, sort of soft launched it over the last couple of weeks. We haven't even like, formally launch launched it yet, but we'll put out a blog post soon. Um, the idea is if you go to 21.co, you can set up a public profile that is effectively a replacement for a public email address. Uh, and so now people outside your network can pay to get in touch with you and uh, you can keep the money or you can donate it to charity. And this is a basic primitive that we're going to be using as a foundation for other things. Um, but uh, we, we think it's one of the first really useful applications of digital currency, which even somebody who's not a digital currency aficionado can understand and value and, and use. And we've started to see actually quite a few people uh, signing up for it. Uh, so that's that's a primary thing that I'm working on right now. All right. Uh, what about what about currently like in the in the space? How do you feel about the future of? Kind of Bitcoin and blockchain because it's it seems like last year we've seen a very large 
almost like a year of proof of concept, year of on-ramping and developing a lot of the basic infrastructure to kind of really build what the vision of this technology is kind of set out to do. And this year we might start to see a lot of those proof of concepts turn into something that can be used on a, on a product level. People like real end users starting to interact with the technology. How do you feel about the space and its development for this year and kind of what's to come? Do you feel like it's, it's lagging? Do you feel like it's on par with what it's set out to do or it's, it's right on target? Yeah. So um, what I think is uh, that there's a thing called the Gartner hype cycle, uh, which we sort of think of at Anderson Harvest as almost a, a law of technology. And if you Google it, it's spelled Gartner, G-A-R-T-N-E-R. Uh, and this is actually this concept of when you've got a new technology, first people get very excited about it. Uh, and there's a hype uh, peak that happens. And then what happens is a lot of folks get attracted to technology because there's just tons of talk about it. And then they try to actually use it for something beyond a proof of concept. And they find that it's got this limitation or that limitation or there's technical difficulty. And relatively quickly, people start to lose faith in the technology and think it was all hype. It was all just a bag of hot air. And then there's a relatively small number of people who stick with it, who were drawn in by the hype or they were you know, made aware of it by the hype, but they also have the guts and the gumption to stick with it even through the lows. And those are the folks who then increase the utility of it and uh, you know, then you get to this um, point where the technology is actually useful. You can see that on a very large scale with the dot-com bubble in 2000, now almost 17 years ago, uh, where in the 90s, everybody had all these ideas about what the internet could do. And then based on those expectations, there was a huge spike and then a crash in the market that took three years or, or more to recover from. And it was only really several years after that recovery that people started to realize, oh, this Web 2.0 thing is, is a real thing, that the new wave of internet companies is real. And then, of course, there's a 2008 crash. And then it took almost 10 years in some ways before people to say, okay, wow, this internet thing really, really does work. And uh, with Bitcoin, um, it's been through multiple cycles like this, as have many technologies, by the way. Uh, Bitcoin went through its first cycle, which is actually reflected in the price graph, in 2011. There's a peak of hype and then it crashed mm -hmm. down. And then it's next one in early 2013. Uh, and then it's next one in early 2014. And with each, you know, hype cycle, you know, crash and then recovery, a new wave of people were brought in. Uh, those people steadily became more pragmatic, more mainstream in some ways, um, and increased the demand for Bitcoin uh, and, you know, started getting aspects of the technology into other things. And I think a similar sort of thing is happening with the offshoots of Bitcoin, uh, specifically altcoins, you know, blockchain and Ethereum. So altcoins themselves, I think, have um, sort of tracked Bitcoin in the sense that there's a lot of hype around them in early 2014. Then people lost faith in them and it kind of crashed down. And now they're starting to come back again with Zcash and, and whatnot. So the general concept of altcoin trading, things like Polychain, for example, are now springing up that are focused on um, altcoin trading. Shapeshift has make it much, made it much easier to, to do this. And people are starting to recognize, okay, there's, there's potentially applications uh, outside of the ones that Bitcoin permits where you'd have some exchange rate of Bitcoin versus, say, Zcash, and uh, then go and do whatever you want to do with Zcash and then come back to Bitcoin. So all kinds of sort of track Bitcoin, they're starting to come back up on, on the hype cycle. Um, blockchain and Ethereum, and by blockchain I refer to uh, 
private permission ledgers uh, you know, that, that banks and so on have used. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum, as, as you know, the next large public blockchain, um, went through hype cycles with their peaks in, I would argue, 2016. And now they sort of crash down and they're in their relative troughs. Uh, and um, the idea here is that with Ethereum, I would say post-DAO, it definitely uh, you know, lost a lot of people uh, or, or energy. And then you know, there's been all these hard forks and so on recently. Uh, with that said, I do greatly respect uh, the work that those folks have done. Um, I do think that they have put forth a lot of interesting ideas and have pushed the space forward. And I do think that there will ultimately be Ethereum applications. Um, and I actually also know that they went through one, you know, hype peak and, and trough before, where you know they did their crowdfund, and then afterwards, you know, Vitalik had a hard time of it for about two years before then they had their spike to one bill earlier last year. Mm-hmm. So these things go through multiple cycles mm-hmm. like this. And, what what uh, you have to do is be tough enough to to grit out the tough times and then come back for the good times. So mm-hmm. I think that they will do it eventually, but you know they're they're in that you know sort of relatively tough time period right now. And with blockchain with permission ledger, uh, that's uh, that's similar, where a bunch of banks got you know excited about this, which is good. It was on the cover of the Economist. Lots of folks getting into the space and then trying to apply it and finding various practical and institutional difficulties with doing so. For example. Uh, if, if selling to a company is hard, um, you know, we often refer to enterprise sales as like getting a bill through Congress. Well, selling to a consortium is even harder because it's like getting an international treaty passed. You're not just mm-hmm. getting a nation to agree to something. You're getting a bunch of nations who are all competing in this sense, for example, a bunch of banks to all agree on using a central database. And uh, that's not, or not central, but, you know, a, a distributed ledger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not that easy to do. So, uh, so there's social kinds of things that have made you know, adoption of private blockchains hard. And then it's also just the, the sort of question of, well, what ideas from Bitcoin, what exactly does it mean to have a private blockchain? Is there still the concept of hashing in any way? Um, is there still any, uh, you know, who, who has the permissions? Do you need private keys in the same way? These are things that various folks have developed different solutions to, and they'll, they'll punch it out and we'll let the market decide. Um, I am, you know, of the folks in that space, I think there's some smart people. Um, I think that um, Chain.com is very good. Uh, that Adam Ludwin is quite smart. Um, I think that uh, Preston Byrne and the guys at Eris. Um, Mon- Monex. Monex now, I believe. Yeah, they renamed themselves. That's right. I think they're pretty smart. Um, but uh, we'll see what happens. You know, I, I, I do also think that where private blockchain has landed up is a somewhat more pragmatic area. In the same way that Santander recently recognized, maybe about six months ago, which not that recently, but relatively recently, recognized that they need some kind of token to execute contracts on a private blockchain. Mm-hmm. In the same way, I think folks who are within the Bitcoin space uh, have realized, well, you know, there is a continuum because a payment channel is effectively a private blockchain between two parties mm-hmm. because you have to maintain state that is outside of the, the blockchain itself and then you settle there. And yes, the cryptographically... Um, you know, trustworthy private blockchain, but nevertheless, it is a, a you know, it is off-chain state of some kind. Then you can go up one more level and you can say, well, any off-chain database that's eventually synchronized out to uh, the public blockchain, like Coinbase's internal database, um, is kind of a private blockchain. And then you get up to full public blockchains like Ethereum and Bitcoin. And so I think some of the ideas from private blockchain will actually be used within Bitcoin uh, and it'll start to all melt together such like, very similar to intranets and intranets. When you Slack somebody, you're not really thinking about whether it's over the company intranet 
uh, or a company intranet or whether it's over the internet. In fact, you might have some people working from home and that's over the internet and others are in the office and it's the intranet, but it all blends together and you just use different uh, tools to, to get the job done. And in the same way, we may see a relatively near future where folks will trade in and out of altcoins like Zcash. They will use private blockchains maybe for high performance and public blockchains when they want it to be, you know, recorded to the, to the blockchain record. And maybe they'll use Ethereum for certain things that Bitcoin can't do or, or vice versa. So I like I that'd be my ideal. I think um, a pragmatic and holistic future where most of these things succeed. So it's a long-winded answer, but uh, gives you <laughs> no. I mean that, that that answered any possible extra add-on I, I could have added into there. Um, sure. So 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 that's excellent. I, I love I love the fact that you do see the vision for the interoperability between like Zcash and Bitcoin and Ethereum because I do believe personally, just as you do, that I think that that's ultimately where Bitcoin is going. So, but do you think that um, personally? Do you think that uh, Bitcoin and its like current development? Do you think that it's uh, stagnation in any way like like currently what with like segwit and that trying to get that activated and things of that nature do you think that will ultimately like hold it back from interoperability with these other chains in any way or do you think that bitcoin will just continue to finesse into its thing and like and work in amongst them in, in some in some capacity and relatively quickly yeah so so i'd say that interoperability is really just a function of exchange rate mm -hmm. so it is a very arm's length interoperability where Bitcoin can interoperate with any altcoin by simply selling Bitcoin, buying the altcoin, doing what you want to do, and then, if you so decide, buying Bitcoin back again at the end. In fact, mm -hmm. Peter Todd has said, I think, um, exactly that, that he buys Monero or Zcash when he wants to do private transactions and then trades back into Bitcoin afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, he said he's not a long-term holder of Zcash, which is fine. That's his prerogative. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, he, he does use it. Uh, and... Um, so, so that right there, interop is already there. You don't need yeah. any complicated programming. Um, even something as simple, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a great service. I'm not trying to denigrate in any way, but mm -hmm. it's even something as conceptually simple as Shapeshift, where you simply buy and sell out and in of a currency is interop. Yeah. Um, with respect to the other issues in terms of, you know, quote, stagnation, uh, you know, this is something where I can definitely see both sides of the argument. On the one hand, once you've gotten something like Bitcoin to work, uh, you don't want to screw it up. And there is an argument for being relatively conservative on a $10 billion market cap currency, right? Um, it is, you know, probably going to be the backbone for a lot of these other things, or maybe you can take a higher risk in some altcoin, and then you can, you know, have Bitcoin be the relatively stable backbone. That's definitely one argument. Um, and the other argument is, of course, you know, well, we want to have some capacity increase of some kind, and the political wrangling community has made that... Uh, difficult to come by, um, where each party has enough votes effectively with mining to, to block one versus the other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what I think is in some ways it's similar, not exactly analogous, but similar to the period from roughly 1998 to 2004, where uh, the front end of the web stabilized under IE6, and by 2004, something like 98 or 99% of browsers were using IE6. And while that had downsides, the ups, many downsides. Uh, the upside was that you know a whole generation of internet companies could come to maturity. Google could, and Amazon could, and eBay could, and PayPal could, and whatnot, because they had an imperfect, a buggy, but a stable, despite being buggy, base from which to work. And then they developed sophisticated you know modifications to that, like Ajax, which uh, worked around those limitations. And eventually, the browser wars reopened with you know Firefox, and eventually you know Safari and Chrome. And so that's like one possible, you know, path that we go down, where Bitcoin 
remains hard to change, just like IE6 and HTML4 uh, for a long time. And then all the innovation happens at other layers, and then we sort of consolidate around this imperfect but useful thing, and then eventually we have another burst of innovation happening later. That's that's one possible scenario. Mm. That's a very interesting like way of putting it. I haven't, I haven't heard that that uh, particular analogy with the um, the browser wars and IE6 being somewhat, the, the, you know, despite how buggy it was, it was the the, the standard for how how thing was built outside of it. Uh, do you have any? Yeah, now, I will, Go ahead. One thing though, just just to clarify, basically, there is one obvious big difference between Bitcoin versus IE6, which is that a Bitcoin isn't just a piece of software; it's also got the distributed ledger, and that distributed ledger represents money. So um, the resistance to changing it is significantly higher than there is with uh, a browser, where if a browser crashes, then you've got a bigger issue. Um, so not every aspect of the analogy doesn't hold up. Um, and I can understand why there are folks who are strict blockchain constructionists, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sympathetic to that, actually, because a lot of the folks who got into Bitcoin in the early days got into it because it was a form of money that was more resistant to political wrangling and harder to change and harder to, you know, do things like, uh, you know, arbitrary changes in monetary policy. So I'm sympathetic to all that. Um, anyway, I just want to make that point just in case like someone says, Oh, you're making a direct course, analogy. Yeah. Between it should always be mentioned when given trying to give these imperfect analogies that consensus is really yeah. difficult and changing it is, in, is incredibly painstaking and, but it's, it's, it's worth the effort. How do you, like, yes. because of that, like, do you have any potential advice for like young developers, entrepreneurs, I mean, people who are interested in getting into the space, whether it be Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto? However, there's a lot of ways you can get into it. Is there any way that you, or advice you can give developers to take advantage of, maybe just for instance, the 21, the 21 computer and the short and medium long term? Yeah. So, so by the way, Trarian computer is sold out. Um, so that that was basically something which we did as a proof of concept to show what kinds of things we built with intrinsic, you know, Bitcoin linked into something. If you actually go to our website, twenty.co front slash learn, there's a tutorial there, which is actually presages the profiles. There's actually a tutorial there that says, um, you know, charge somebody uh, for every SMS they send you without giving out your phone number. So, you know, that achieved its purpose in the sense of, you know, having us experiment with a bunch of sort of Bitcoin native kind of things. That leads me sort of to my next point, which is, um, in terms of advice to younger developers and whatnot, I would say, uh, you know, maybe a few things. So first is obviously master the basics. Like, you know, you should be able to do, you know, JavaScript and HTML and, you know, whatever backend language you want, whether it's Python or Go or, or what have you. I'd recommend Python and Django simply because um, you also get NumPy and so you get the mm-hmm. whole scientific computing, you know, apparatus there. Um you know, Rails can do, Django can do almost everything Rails can, or pretty much, but then it also gives you scientific computing, so it's just easier, I think. Um, Go has certain advantages, Node.js, you know, I'm not again saying anything, but point is, number one, just master the fundamentals of blocking and tackling. Um, maybe an obvious point, but worth mentioning. And number two is, like, um, you know, while new technologies are awesome, it is very important to try to articulate why that new technology gives you a 10x over something that people already want to do. So, you know, there's, a, there's an interesting tension to some extent between two different models of new products. The first quasi-conventional model is one where you, you know, you put something out and it's truly breakthrough and disruptive and it's different from everything that's come before and it's transformative and it's a big advance. And the second model was sort of the Evan Williams model, which is people's wants and needs are pretty much the same. They want to communicate, they want to 
you know, reproduce, et cetera. <laughs> they want to get food. Um, but uh, <laughs> than, than before, right? And um, hence, you know, you go from sending a message to somebody via physical mail to email to Facebook to Twitter. And, uh, you know, each time you're just doing it faster, the same things that people have done. However, with that said, as you go through each step of that, each adjacent step just seems like an improvement where you start putting them together and you get qualitatively different things. For example, when you go from physical mail to email, well, okay, fine, you've taken away the stamp, you've made it instant. Uh, those are some pretty big things. Going from an email thread to Facebook also seems reasonable. You go from a reply all where you're pasting in your photos of your wedding or whatever and getting people's comments to a Facebook thread where you're doing that. However, if you take two generations and you try and compare physical mail, not to email, but to a Facebook thread, then you start realizing how big a jump it is. Because if you imagine trying to model a Facebook thread on, on your wedding or what have you with physical mail, you'd be sending out a postcard to say 100 people. All of them would have to go and get stamps and postcards and have to know the addresses of the other 99 people you sent it to. They'd write their one comment on there and then they'd send it out, right? <laughs> If you think about that, right, logistically, um, that's actually a huge cost, right? That's so huge that it was a behavior that you'd never do. And uh, among other things, the guy who sent it out would probably not include the addresses of the other 99 people on there. <laughs> um, and that thing, which is like extremely expensive and extremely time consuming, now can happen in the blink of an eye and we don't even think about it because it went through the intermediary of something that was, you know, email. So, and, and just to put a fine point on it, you went from physical mail of like one-to-one -to, -one to email of one-to-one, -one, then reply all, which is one-to-n, and then a Facebook thread, which is like n-to-n, right? So anyway, so that's basically um, you know, how certain changes can come about where each step is evolutionary, but when you put them together, you're like, wow, society changed a lot because these things became so cheap and so fast that qualitatively new things started to happen. Uh, so what is my advice to young developers is basically find something that's like that where on the on the very surface level, on the immediate level, it is an improvement over something people already want to do. But then you can game out long-term distal consequences that are qualitatively different. Excellent, excellent. So, so I I love I love the um, the advice here, like for developers. But I do have I do have a question for you in regards to like from a business perspective, like entrepreneurial perspective, like uh, like from a from a VC and from like your your experience, right? In this in a space where like the technology is evolving so quickly, where we go through like one narrative where it's like Bitcoin is it, blockchain is it, back to public chains, you know, back to you know whatever flavor of the month is, like what is your advice as like um, I guess sort of like from a VC standpoint for individuals that want to build something on one of these technologies but they're not really like they're uncomfortable making a commitment to one particular technology because they think it won't get them enough interest or something like do you, is there a way that you could possibly suggest what with all this stuff going on in crypto how somebody can like more easily make a decision on what to build on? Um, you, you should work backwards from the problem you want to solve and then find the best technology for it. Got that. Excellent. Excellent. So I was just, yeah, I was just generally overall like curious if, if you had any sort of like experience about like as a VC right. in crypto things, things yeah. to avoid. Well, okay. So let me give an analogy just, you know, right now when you've got a bunch of technologies punching it out, you basically mm -hmm. have to make an educated guess. And sometimes I guess is wrong. So I'll give you another analogy. So back in, I think 2009 or 2010, 
uh, there was a reasonable hypothesis by a lot of smart people in Silicon Valley that HTML5 would be the next big thing and that you know, native mobile apps were you know, not really going to be the way of the future um, and that the web was, was the way forward. And that turned out to be wrong, um, at least for, for a long enough period of time that you know, basically for the last decade, native apps have been extremely important. And it was so wrong that you know, when Facebook came to its IPO in 2012, people don't really remember this, but its mobile app was really, really poor and it didn't have any mobile revenue to speak of because they made a huge bet on cross-platform HTML5. So something where, you know, there are two technologies, they seem neck and neck, and just one of them, you know, just got much more traction than the other, right? Which was, you know, where, you know, iOS apps and then Android apps got and versus HTML5 cross-platform. Now, what eventually happened, what just happened really over the last year is Facebook took its licks, it went and became a first-class iOS and Android shop and shipped many, many iterations of and became basically the number one mobile app on both platforms in the world. Um, and they built up their mobile business um, such that they have more mobile users than otherwise. And then they also became this incredible mobile advertising business where they're driving all these mobile installs and it's most of their revenue, right? So they completely crushed it on every dimension there where they made a bad technology choice, but then they were smart enough and resourceful enough to be able to recover from that and in fact become number one again. Now, later, 2016, 2017, they just put out React Native um, about a year and a half ago, React and React Native. And uh, that has actually become the cross-platform layer that they wanted even six years ago. So they went and took another crack at it and it did work. So I guess my answer on that is make an educated guess based on you know what technology you have, but be ready and have a good enough team. I mean, obviously Facebook is one of the very best, uh, but have a good enough team where if you make the wrong decision, you're constantly monitoring it and then you can pull a ripcord and change directions if, if you find that you've really gone behind the eight ball. I think that that's a perfect analogy of kind of, and, and, a, and a great segue to kind of the next question of what I kind of wanted to get into, which is, uh, so you, you mentioned earlier something that I try and use as, a, as an imperfect analogy a lot, and that's the in, in, intranets versus internet argument. And I've always seen the rise of intranets as one, companies and corporations not comfortable with the size and scale of the internet at the time. And they were essentially in a, a, an enabler of the internet to scale because eventually as the internet got more trustworthy, they then linked into it because they needed to communicate with people outside of their, of their network. And I almost see mm -hmm. the consortium private blockchain aspect of the space as the intranet of, of, of the, of, of the cryptocurrency space. And it, yep. they're almost enabling Bitcoin to scale or they're enabling people to jump into the space and test out the technology without getting into the, what they might imagine as the cesspool of the internet. Like, you know what I mean? They, they're, they're afraid to release a lot of things, maybe potentially because the technology isn't ready to have all of that. And as we've seen from the political debates of the block size and, and kind of the, the governance models and how we're working on those things, it may not be ready to handle that type of, that type of scale. And like, I was just curious about your, your opinion on that analogy as a, as a, as a kind of enabling, enabling of scaling. Yeah. I mean, so I think it's actually a very good analogy. Um, you know, all analogies are imperfect. This is a very good one. Um, the thing is just like with an intranet, you could, um, connected to the internet 
you know, the same way, if you've got a private blockchain or you've got an internal consortium, well, those transactions are going to be probably denominated in dollars or yen or some other currency, which does have an exchange rate to Bitcoin. So in a sense, there's already a bridge of some kind, right? Because you know what the exchange rate is of the internal things versus Bitcoin. And the question is whether that bridge becomes formalized. Um, and, and I think it will over time. Um, it'll take a while. Um, but, you know, for example, Microsoft under Satya Nadella relatively recently came out, maybe two years ago or three years ago over there, Microsoft tools for Linux and like Linux support for all types of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, basically that would have been absolutely unheard of, you know, 10 years ago. But you could completely imagine within five years, um, major banks without, you know, blinking an eye, having Bitcoin and or Ethereum and or maybe even Zcash support. Um, I think Bitcoin is more likely in Ethereum, Bitcoin and Ethereum more likely right now. Zcash starts to get outside of their comfort zone probably. But that's actually what's interesting. Like relative to Zcash, Bitcoin is actually, you know, pretty trackable and mainstream, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'd say probably within, within five years, probably sooner, you're going to start having at least one or two large banks, not just with some private blockchain deployments, but some bridge to the larger crypto environment. Uh, Fred, actually, Fred Ursum recently, you know, said something I thought was funny, but also true, is that, you know, in his retirement, maybe he'll he'll be at the Goldman crypto trading desk. <laughs> I saw that. I saw that myself. I saw, I, saw him, I saw him at Construct today, too. I meant to ask him about what's he up to now, but that's great. Um, so so uh, I guess... I guess if we have anything else here, is there anything, because we've asked pretty much everything we wanted to cover from you and pick your brain in regards to like business and, and since you've had so much experience in this space, um, is there anything you would want to leave our listeners with in regards to like 21, like e either as far as like anything to look forward to, like any like upcoming announcements, anything that um, you know, just, just, to, just to generally overall get people excited? Yeah, go sign up at Twitter.co because uh, your name might go away. So um, <laughs> if you want to get Twitter.co Steven or you want to get uh, – you know, Trend.co Corey or what have you, um, go there now and get get signed up. We've got a lot of stuff coming. Awesome. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, I think that's everything for us today. Um, hopefully everyone enjoyed our conversations and our discussions. And, uh, and you know, once 21 has, uh, you know, more so like built out these like these platforms um, that you guys are like focusing on right now, we'd love to have you back on and learn learn more about what, what's come out of there. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, thank, thank you for, you for taking the time. To you have a great day. This episode of Block Channel was sponsored by Purse.io. Purse.io is the easiest way to spend Bitcoin and save money on everything you love at Amazon. They even have iOS and Android apps for shopping on the go. Purse is holding a hackathon at Hack Reactor in San Francisco on the weekend of March 24th for developers interested in building on Bitcoin, Purse's full-node wallet implementation written in JavaScript. So check out the links in the show notes to register if you're curious and want to attend. Top prize is $100 in Bitcoin, signed copy of the Internet of Money by Andreas Antonopoulos, and a Legend Nano S. So check out and register fast before it goes up. Then you get a job, you hate to pay back Sally make fees. Watch your check and decrease. Big gaps to close, man, you barely make it ends meet. She's never been too friendly.